0: Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash Ear for more details.
1: Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile unlimited premium wireless. Get it get 30, 30, get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, get 20, 20, get 15, 15, 15, 15 just 15 bucks a month. Sold. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 upfront for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Yeah, they were. Dandelion Records.
2: There we go. So that, that's Stackwaddy.
1: Stat- Stat- what, what a
2: great name. Oh, it's a brilliant name. And, uh, and it has to be pronounced, of course, in a Pelian way. Stackwaddy. <laughs> from Stat- Timberley, Cheshire.
0: <laughs> <laughs> they said that they were. they're, they're, they're of a piece with those groups who kind of in my mind they're always playing fox in potter's bar and it's 1973 <laughs> it? they they're probably on a bill they're probably on a bill with tucky buzzard do you
2: remember tucky, tucky buzzard i do a brewer's droop <laughs> That's right.
0: uh, tucky, buzzard. Stomach, tucky, tucky buzzard tucky buzzard who who put out an album produced by bill wyman i think which gloried in the title Warm Slash. That's brilliant. And then they wondered... <laughs> that could well, be name ..bothering too. the chart compiler. I know. Uh, but but, but Patrick Crowther's a... written, to, written to us about Stackwardy, and uh, he says, in a recent podcast you mentioned Stackwardy, a band whose Uv has escaped me thus far. In looking through the track listing for their supposedly seminal work Bugger Off... On Dandelion, as you said. Funny in itself. (laughs) I can't believe it. We thought we'd call the album Bugger Off. All right, fine. okay. I was struck by... Here comes the song titles. I was struck by Meat Pies Have Come But Band's Not Here Yet and The Girl From Ipanema. And The Girl From (laughs) Ipanema. What a combo. (laughs) It's It's fantastic, fantastic. isn't it? (laughs) Shall we try? Uh, do you know what? You know our lady friend who comes up with the musical selections according to my voice. Oh, command. Alexa, let's try her on Stack Waddy. Well, let's try See this. If she, I'm going to. Are you ready for this? Okay. Yeah, I am.
2: Alexa, Alexa I be very,
0: very surprised if she's ever heard of them. Play Stack Waddy. Playing
1: songs by Stack
0: Waddy from Spotify. Crikey! That's that, That's Stack Waddy. No. All right. Yeah, that. No,
2: it can't. she's actually she's heard of Stack
0: Alexa, stop! for crying out loud. Alexa, stop! That is stop.
2: absolutely astonishing. My God, what? I mean, what? I mean, what, <laughs> what, what, what would that have been? My
1: God, to, uh, hey, let's repossession
2: boogie, the... boogie. Mama, let's keep your big the... mouth shut. I'm just looking at the track list here. <laughs>
0: Let's follow uh, through on our notional bill at Tharks in Potter's Bar in 1973. Let's try the next one. Are you ready? Okay. Alexa, go on. play Tucky Buzzard. Playing songs by Tucky Buzzard
1: This is
2: extraordinary. Yes, it started. There you go. There you go.
0: Good grief.
2: Well, I am. Alexa, I take stop. my hat off to Alexa. Her her uh, knowledge of both rock and pop is considerably broader than I imagined it was. That's
0: absolutely absolutely it's it's as Tucky Buzzard.
2: Well, and if we're there's we're any member of Tucky Buzzard listening, in the unlikely event, they'll be thrilled to think that in some small corner of a foreign field, Alexa is um, you know. Holding a guttering candle to their memory.
0: Yeah, I don't know if they get Wonderful. the full streaming rate if I played less than thirty seconds. I <laughs> <They're> probably, probably <laughs> going to, don't get the fraction of a penny. Point oh oh two
2: pence pays into the <laughs> bugger
0: the t- tucky buzzard exchequer. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, uh, talking of uh, band finances, if if you're interested in band finances, which I'm personally always interested in band finances. We recorded the word in your attic with uh, with Miles Hunt uh, with Miles yes. formerly of the only Wonder Stuff the other day, which will be flying this weekend, and uh, and he's got a fantastic story there about bands of VAT the like of which I've never heard. It it opened up a whole new world of uh, a band uh, finances to me that did didn't it you.
2: It did, and the message was: anybody in the band is keep receipts for absolutely everything, absolutely Literally every half pint of everything. beer, every every twenty Marlborough, whatever you know, because Miles did keep his receipts, and uh, on the strength of that, bought himself.
0: <laughs> you'll maybe have to listen to the podcast <laughs> and find out, but bought himself. A you've, fine got a, property, you've got to, you've got to. It's yeah. really he was a terrific yeah. guest. He's, he's out fabulous. there in, in Shropshire. Shropshire. Um, Doing these kind of lockdown sessions and so forth on on Facebook and uh, and uh, keeping body and soul together by by going to the local campsite shop. I love that idea. You just do, just do a Tesco buying, or a Sainsbury's. <laughs> he goes to buying a food that shop. I thought had
2: been banned. He's been living on. He bought a can of <laughs> spam, didn't he? <laughs> and declared it quite nice. It's Literally, And he tweeted really a picture of himself sense. proudly holding a, 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 a can of spam. I thought that really is, that's, that's hard times, isn't it? That's no, the wartime
0: spirit. Brilliant. So what else, what else have we got in Reader's Correspondence? Anything else you care to read about? Uh Reader's Correspondence, let me have a look. I've got, we're so, here. there from was, that just, that was a very
2: funny back. thing from Andrew Pearson. Did you see that? Andrew Pierce oh, right, wrote back. We gone. were talking about working in, in, in record shops. Now people get used to going before Shazam and try and sing the lines from the songs. He was he a said, human he, Shazam. Remember, yes, a human yes. Shazam. You remember somebody coming in asking for a record called Long live, Long live the Leaves, which was meant to be the Who live at Live at Leeds, and somebody asked for the, <laughs> the News of the World Symphony. That's brilliant, isn't it? <laughs> uh, and the the I'm I'm Inclined at Night music, which is terrific. <laughs> If this was a, if this was a, um, you know, a piece in a magazine, the headline would be the loneliest monk. And he also added, that's right. In, he worked in Bristol in the nineteen seventies, and they have a strange dialect in Bristol, which involves adding the, the letter L to the end of words, which they still have actually. A great ideal, they say, don't they? I've got a great ideal. He said uh, examples could be Africal or Frank Sinatra, etc. He says composure left the building on the day we were asked for Handel's Missile. <laughs> That's good, isn't it? <laughs> doesn't the missile, please. That's really funny. So yeah, We had a nice one Jane the... Plowman. Did you see, Jane Plowman said that everyone should go back and listen to the Nick Lowe podcast. She said it was really good. And why don't we do something on Frank Zappa? Well, that's partly because David Hepworth's not an enormous enthusiast about Frank no, Zappa.
0: Do you know, and... I, uh, this is... Well, I've you like Frank hot raps about it. I've it? also... No, no I, I speak... I've been... I, I saw Frank Zappa in 1971 I saw, when they made the live album. I I saw oh, him at really? the uh, at the Colosseum in London when they used to have Sunday night gigs at the Colosseum, um, and that was when he had um, Flo and Eddie in the group and so forth and all the all, oh, yeah, of, yeah. Uh, all the all the Mud Shark stuff and all the smutty stuff about groupies and everything. We used to think that was absolutely corking, hilarious, day before anybody decided to disapprove. Um, so you right. know, I I, I can. I can mix it about Frank Zappa with the best of them. Albeit I'm not I'm in, I'm a class below you when it comes to knowing about Frank Zappa. Zappa nerd. Oh, drink of water. Drink of water. Suddenly, um,
2: uh, Andy MacArthur wrote a nice thing saying people should go back and listen to the... I can't remember which one it was, the, <coughs> and the Van Morrison story that we, we told him on the podcast about him standing <laughs> up at a, at a party. Do you remember? In a, an old overcoat and a flat cap. And somebody opened the door and said, has anybody ordered a taxi? <laughs> <laughs> which, is just, which is just absolutely brilliant of him.
0: You, yeah, he just he cannot help looking like a minicab driver, can he? Just, no, um, a cab driver. I oh, know. And you
2: mentioned it, it, that the Sid Griffin and the Johnny Rogan ones were good to listen to. Johnny Rogan and Sid Griffin on The Birds. Oh, right, yes, good. yes. And we've got a Dutch... She thinks she's our first Dutch subscriber. The girl said, I've been fangirling you for, since t- 2010, if not longer. Good luck with pronouncing my first name. Think Meringue. She's called Meringue Vaar. <laughs> think
0: right, Meringue. Very good. She's been listening meringue. since think 2010. Meringue. That's very good. And it was yep. only the other day that I discovered uh, that I was actually found myself listening to the very first one that we ever did. Which we recorded. Oh, okay. In at the desk that I'm sitting at I'm sitting at right now and uh where you, you were you and your lady wife were around for a Sunday lunch and I said before we start let's go upstairs and we're just gonna record half an hour of a thing called a podcast and you said, What's that? And I just said, Don't worry, we'll 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 just do it. <laughs> don't worry, don't worry. Don't yes, yes. oh, well, worry, your pretty you little head. And uh, as we yeah, did yeah. it and put it out, and that was two thousand we and six, two thousand and six. I think we were, we were. Go
2: west, yeah. You know, it's long we before you know, all the land. newspapers had long before maps columns. Yeah, we were. <laughs>
0: there. No, I think it's. Just, I, th- I think we should do. You know, we should pat ourselves on the back for that. You know, we, we started, we and we're a still doing on it. Our own trumpet. And we you know, are. so uh, and it's very so it's very nice to know that uh, we we've, we've, we've even in Holland that they're talking about us, or uh, one person is talking brilliant, to brilliant. themselves about us. one person called uh, meringue. S- <laughs> yes, called yeah. meringue.
1: This is a lockdown special from the word you ain't going nowhere.
0: Uh, should we hand out our regular so lockdown, lockdown awards. awards? Lockdown awards, yes, sure to, to recognize those uh. Musical artists who have uh, taken advantage of the the current situation to kind of invite us into their homes, ostensibly to witness musical performances, but really, what we're all tuning in for is to look at what the houses are like. To have a look around their kitchen. I mean, absolutely, it's as simple as that. And uh,
2: the winner, surely, in that respect, being John Fogerty. <laughs> John Fogerty and so, his two sons and his daughter uh, in their supposedly their back garden, which is actually in Ventura County, California. It's just up from uh, from Los Angeles. If anyone's not seen this, just just find it on YouTube. It's absolutely fantastic. It's him playing Green because they're doing this. where well, they're doing this. They're they're they an an shift about the it. houses.
0: No, but they 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 they're doing a load of different ones where they they uh, they record in different. Uh, regions of the property. Every time, you know, sometimes it's in a studio, sometimes it's in a living room, and kitchen, whatever. This particular one was outside, of what was no, what was apparently their barbecue spot, wasn't it really, Mark? Because he had a it's fantastic a they're fire. Literally, they they're, they're
2: they're toasting marshmallows on an open fire. And behind them is just what appears to be about a hundred square miles of verdant, kind of you know, mountain-filled <laughs> landscape. The vast amount of which you imagine is probably owned by um, you know the, by John Fogerty himself. Fogerty J. And the so Fogerty J. And the the other the other thing I noticed was these kids are just so. Oh, the two boys are just gorgeous. They, they, they look like those archetypal kind of dusty hippies. They must be in their mid twenties. They look like two members of the group Stillwater who appeared in the film Almost Famous, the Cameron Crowe film. Do you remember that classic look, kind of m- yep, moustache yep. and kind of, you know, a Dickie Betts kind of longish hair? They look just gorgeous, don't they? It's great. By the way, I must plug, if you're talking about Credence, th- my favourite clip of them is I Put a Spell on You on YouTube, which is amazing to do a version of that old uh, Screaming Jay Hawkins uh, song. And it's, oh, God, what a fantastic group. Don't you think Creedence Clearwater? I mean, what's, what is arguably wrong with Arguably the best group ever. I mean, John Fogarty, there was nothing... It's interesting. He's up there with Prince in some degrees. in Prince could produce and Prince could write songs and he could play any instrument and uh, and he could sing and he could dance. And John Fogarty could do most... John Fogarty, fabulous-looking, brilliant instrumentalist, incredible songwriter, great brand lead, band leader, amazing presence. Just He just had the whole package. Phenomenal guy. It's funny, while you, writing, about
0: it, while you talk about his kids, though, um, who you can't help thinking are probably the kids of a of a marriage quite late in life. because they, I would have thought you, so. You would have thought so, because he's got to be... I mean, he's well into his 70s. I, I don't know exact exact date of birth. Yeah, he must be mid-70s, uh, obviously. He must be. Uh, but his kids... Clearly, you know, what's happened in the last few months uh, since lockdown is is that young people are either... Young people in their 20s and 30s are either locked down in their uh, in their pokey little flats in hipster areas of London, San Francisco, God knows where, or they're back home with their mum and dad where they're getting fed properly and there's yeah. probably their laundry's done and there might even be a garden, you know. And, yeah. and John Fogerty's kids are looking like, all right, we've got to sit here with dad every night while he does Screams Clearwater favourites and we've got to dutifully play acoustic guitar. But, but look the where we are! <laughs> yeah, <laughs> look, where we we are. it's a nice view,
2: and uh, oh, is that is that steak I smell sizzling on the barbecue? Excellent!
0: <laughs> and all their mates' have been looking with great envy of the, yeah. you know. So it's their houses that are the key the key thing. Well, uh, have you seen
2: uh, the... You've I think you've seen the, the Sophie Ellis Baxter, haven't you? Sophie Ellis do that kitchen disco thing, which again I thoroughly recommend to anyone who's not seen it. And she does these things where uh, I, also what a kitchen! Dave, her kitchen has a
0: glitter ball in it. It has a pinball machine. It's well, also fantastic. when I the one the one I saw, she was wearing a fabulous sparkly frock, wasn't she? Clearly, she stage wears uh,
2: an uh, amazing array of kind of stage, kind of tinselly, glittery kind of seventies disco. Dresses. She looks
0: sensational.
2: She looks um, she's, i don't know—old she is, but she's, she looks about eighteen, doesn't she? She's got five kids. She Still looks about eighteen. It's amazing, amazing. Not
0: it. Not only, Mark, oh, has she got five kids? She has got five boys. Yes, five boys. It's like the old boys. boys. What are the chances? Uh, I don't. I don't know anybody who's got guess. five <laughs> <Yeah>. boys. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that astonishing? You
2: know, five it, boys.
0: Five boys. It reminds me of the old Friars chocolate. Do you remember? You're not old enough to remember that. Friars used to market a chocolate called Five Boys. It was.
2: No, I and don't remember
0: used, that. It used to have... Uh, he, I've got a picture of it in front of me. It used to have um, a picture of, uh, of uh, five boys who were uh, in, very, very in stage, varying stages of their, uh, their journey towards Fry's chocolate. And I think they, they, yeah, they, <laughs> were, they, the stages were desperation, pacification, expectation, acclamation,
1: realisation.
0: It's Fry's. So there you go, fries five. That's boys. wonderful. That's a genius. So that's act. quite complicated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they so back in the Edwardian era, they could have thought to be complicated about things like that. So yeah, so Sophia to in a fabulous oh, kitchen with her Singing fabulous old, children, uh, children dancing in the background. And so
2: forth. this the great version of her doing a few of my favourite things from Sound of Music. which is just brilliant. A waltz. So she's kind of waltzing around the kitchen. And one she the, looks whenever,
0: sensational. Whenever the dog barks,
2: one of her little, one of her little kids uh, arrives with the dog's head on. You know? <laughs> it's just, oh, it's she's She won a trooper. She really is the Force's favourite, don't you think? Sophie ellis Baxter? she wins. Absolutely brilliant. She, Another good one, the Doobies isn't. one's quite good. There's one of the Doobie brothers. I was going to say, one, yeah.
0: Sophie ellis Baxter looks sensational, which is not what you might <laughs> say about the Doobie brothers. The Doobie Brothers, who who've who turned up to do... Well, I saw them doing Black Water in their various homes. But well, it's interesting one, yeah. to see their homes, wasn't it?
2: Oh, incredible, incredible. Which are all the same, aren't they? Just capacious, places, with vast numbers of musical instruments. Patrick Simmons has a kind of an old church organ in the back of his kitchen, you know. And you you feel very envious, actually. And, uh, yeah, that's pretty good, but it, they do look a bit good, don't they? Do you, know, do you remember the amount of time that, well, I know you wouldn't have done because you had better things to do, but I remember we spent ages staring at the cover of The Captain and Me when it came out, which must have been in the early 70s, I think, which had a picture of a, a, a motorway overpass, which just abruptly ended, and underneath that was the band dressed in 19th-century Western garments. Do you remember? the the stagecoach. Yeah. Yeah, Do you remember yeah. that cover? I remember Do you remember I the, one, the, like one, the one?
0: Is if it meant anything? The one I always, the one I always think about with the Doobie Brothers was—is it called Toulouse Street? I think it yeah. is Toulouse Street. It was second album probably, and there they had a photograph of them, uh, styled of them in what was ostensibly a kind of turn of the century New Orleans bordello, where they were. You know, they had. Uh, You know, attractive models dressed in kind of lingerie, draping themselves all over the members of the Doobie Brothers. Who I think were the the least prepossessing groups. (laughs) And also, Mark, you forget one important thing: they were naked. They They were were naked. naked. There was a stage when (laughs) guys in bands, many of whom were staggeringly out of condition, it looked as if they never thought about being in condition. Allowed themselves to be photographed naked. They thought it was. They thought it was a bit of a laugh. There's a picture of the Almond brothers in a river. You
2: ever seen that one? There all is. The brothers, there yeah, is all naked. There
0: is a picture. There's a picture of canned heat out, there, out oh, in man. the and the long grass, <laughs>
2: including the uh, the statuesque Bob. Bob the Bear, who must have weighed in at about twenty five stone on a good day. <laughs> Oh my lord. But,
0: uh, the, so there are all kinds of types. And the Doobie Brothers, uh, what's the name of the, the really thin one? Uh, is that Tom Johnson? I'm very bad on the names of the Doobie Brothers. Uh, I, can't, I, think he, he, it is. I can't remember. He was so thin that they used to, as they used to say, he had to pass a place twice to cast a shadow. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> if he stood sideways, he disappeared disappear into the railings. <laughs> That's
2: right. Yeah. yeah. That's brilliant.
0: Uh, (laughs) uh, oh lord sorry about that sorry about that so yeah but yeah so if you think of any uh, more examples of unprepossessing physical specimens
2: yeah one interesting lockdown thing which our producer magic alex just mentioned to us was that in germany they now have drive-in raves did you know about this Drive in raves. there's a dj playing you just turn up in your cars Turn up your cars, obviously with the people you're self-isolating with and you can't leave your car. And was EJ plays, his mu- plays plays a load of music and, uh, you know, shouts kind of, give me ten fingers. And you you apparently have to... Start. I don't know how that works because the whole thing about a rave is you've got to... Um, it's physical movement and proximity with other people, isn't it? But you have to sit in your car and uh, somehow kind of, um, you know,
0: get involved. That's bizarre. I I can't see things like that at all. I can't see it working because they... They just sound really supplier-led to me rather than demand-led. They do completely
2: do Everyone thinks think, that sounds like a great idea. And when they get there, they'll discover it isn't. And it doesn't quite work. <laughs> but anyway. it, it doesn't work at
0: all. Anyway, you know. we shall see how that, how that all um, shakes down in the fullness of time. The Word Podcast. Fix yourself a drink and it's like being in the pub. Here's a pop theory. It's pretty much impossible in popular music. For somebody taking the stage wearing glasses to be regarded as a bit of a sex bomb. OK, And sex bomb is an important part of the kind of the popular music mix. But if you take the stage wearing glasses, you're pretty much saying to the audience, "I'm not one of those people. I am a bit of a nerd. I'm a bit edgy, I'm a bit interesting, but I'm not like that pretty lead singer at the front, OK? Is that the case? Does that theory stand <laughs> up, do you think, Mark? What do you think? Well, God,
2: the first person you immediately think of, apart from Buddy Holly, obviously, is, uh, is Elvis Costello. And Elvis Costello, if you read his um, his memoir, which I know you did, there's a bit of it where he says he's about 17 or something, and he, 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 uh, he sees an interview with Bonnie Raitt, who says, "'Girls don't make passes at men who wear glasses.'" that old adage, and he uh, takes this very seriously and clearly decides, I am going to wear glasses, and that is therefore, as is the case I actually with most of these people, that it's going to shape my entire visual image because the message with Elvis Costello is, I'm complicated, isn't it? You know, I him what he said. These songs are broadly about revenge. Guilt and Anger. And even his love songs, you know, Alison, oh, you know, you let that little friend of mine take off your party dress. They're very, very bitter and twisted and complicated. So it's not an easy ride with Elvis Costello. So certainly, and in fact, he had a, did he have a chat show called Spectacle later in his life? I think he did. So <laughs> Elvis
0: Costello, your,
2: your point is proved.
0: And of course, and a lot of that he got, you know, it was a very much a kind of self-conscious adaptation Of the Buddy Holly cell, wasn't it when he arrived in nineteen seventy-six? I think they used to say in publicity, they used to say around him, people used to say, "What's he like?" And they would say, "He would like Buddy Holly on acid," you know, which was like saying he looked like he looks like the previous singer who had those kind of specs, but obviously with a with a sort of seventies twist, you know. And 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 Buddy Holly is absolutely fascinating because still, however many years since he died, it's still possible to summon up the idea of Buddy Holly just by those spectacles, isn't it? You know, and so musicals and films and things based on the legacy of Buddy Holly just conjure up those spectacles, and you've you've got the picture of Buddy Holly in your mind still. So, are there any others?
2: Well, there there
1: are
2: Hank Hank Marvin. I mean, Hank Marvin, kind of guitar nerd. Um, I would say, yes. But Hank Marvin's entire, again, visual image, completely, completely contained by uh, the idea of wearing glasses.
0: Nana Muscuri. Sort
2: of
0: a yeah. kind of yes. librarian look, didn't she? Yeah, they, that was, a, it was kind of a, a bit of a defensive move, wasn't it? You know, wearing the spectacles on stage, on telly, was like saying, well, you're not supposed to fancy me. You know what yeah. I mean? That's why I'm, I'm checking your books back in, you know. This <laughs> <Yeah>. one's overdue. <laughs> this Judy Sill, Spir- there's another one. There's another librarian for you.
2: Yes, yeah. this, this yeah. has been out for long overdue. She was a kind of oddball, kind of plain Jane, wasn't she? Um, I mean, Jarvis Cocker's interesting. Was Jarvis Cocker, part of his act was, I think, a skinny, you know, enigmatic
0: student boffin, would you say? Jar- Jarvis Cocker, a rare exception to to the point in that he, he's a lead singer wh- who wears glasses. Yeah. Because most lead singers do not wear glasses. It would be not, it, it just wouldn't fit. The the role that they they have on stage would it at all if they if they had glasses? Well, well, if, can I'm you imagine if if, if if I want you to imagine for a second Led Zeppelin fronted <laughs> by Robert Plant <laughs> wearing glasses, <laughs> peering <laughs> over
2: his frames to look at the front to inspect the front row. I
1: say, <laughs> who do we have here?
2: A lot of girls, and they appear to be screaming. Yeah, it no, doesn't actually, work. no, I disagree. It I disagree. Work. There, there, were I can think of at least two lead singers. Morrissey, when he started, part of his whole concept was the National Health Specs, which was a very, very clever kind of art statement, wasn't it? It was, it was basically saying, "I'm not like you know, Duran Duran. I sit around reading reading Penguin Modern Classics." <laughs> and actually, there was a guy, Dave. I, you I didn't even probably won't remember them. When I was on Select Magazine, he used to write quite a lot about a group called Kingmaker who had a um, a lead singer called Michael Wright, I think his name was, and his whole thing was, "I'm trying to look cute like Harry Potter, really." Um, <laughs> so maybe I don't know. But um, kingmaker and, 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 and rock, glasses in rock music, because the classic is Glenn Cornick of Jethro Tull, <laughs> who looked absolutely. I'm sorry, but he did look a bit dorkish, didn't he?
0: I'm Big sure. I'm sure. Playing it. I'm sure many listeners to this podcast right now were just putting their arms in the air, going, I hope he's going to mention so, Glenn Cornick. So, <laughs> sorry, he hasn't mentioned Glenn Cornick yet. <laughs> a few points for oh, that. What a wild turkey.
2: That's right, that's right. <laughs> But no, it's, but then, it's, 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 I mean, Elton John's another way. Elton John, you know, decided he was going to wear specs and then had to make the specs part of the, well, if you will, spectacle, didn't it? I mean, he got to the point where did. he drew attention to them and they became more and more absurd. And then he had ones with windscreen wipers on them. And, you know, the whole thing was to kind of, was to, you know, to, to overplay the idea that, yes, I know I'm wearing glasses and thus I'm not a sex
0: symbol. Now, and then there's also, there's a subcategory here, which is interesting which you could almost write a book about, which is rock stars who wear sunglasses. Because sunglasses, you can be a sex bomb wearing sunglasses, can't you? Because they hint that you're oh, yeah, kind of... A you're mysterious.
2: Yep, yeah, you're enigmatic. You're... Uh, who, who are the ones who would never see Ian Hunter. Ian Hunter. Ian Hunter. Never seen without shades on. And I suppose Bono, but that's different. Bono claims to have... I think he has got an eye, some kind of eye problem or something where he has to wear... Is that his excuse? I don't know. Roy Orbison, too. Roy Orbison wore shades shade all the time. But didn't he have some problem with his light in, in his eyes? I,
0: I, he might have done. Have you got... You haven't got a pair of sunglasses handy, have you? You don't. You, you, I haven't. No. What, right, what, right, what? Well, right I, now, I'm, just, I I'm can, just going to suggest this to male listeners for the, you know... If it's warm weather this weekend and you, you've you got shorts on, just take an, an average pair of sunglasses and place the sunglasses round your bare leg, just below the knee. Hey, presto, Roy Orbison, OK? It just looks <laughs> like Roy Orbison. <laughs> we used to do this at school. <laughs> It was the only really impression funny. of a pop star anybody could do. Roll up the trouser leg, put a pair of sunglasses on, just below the knee. in looks like was. <laughs> <laughs> that is absolutely so, sensational. Yeah, yeah. And then there the then there's the curious kind of um the the odd odd shape spectacles like Roger McGuinn of the Birds used to wear those. Oh, tiny yeah, yeah, little square, um, one. square ones, didn't he, that were tinted? And yeah, clearly he couldn't see a damn thing through them at all. But it was just his way of looking at the camera wasn't he, when he was on TV. Mike Ratlich's oh, soft machine. Again, the arms are up. Sir, 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 Mr. Mike <laughs>
2: Ratlich with his rectangular shapes. He had exactly the same ones. No, you're right, you wouldn't have been able
0: to see a single thing. <laughs> and, uh, George Clinton, George Clinton, usually had bizarre specs, didn't he? He, he always seemed to be photographed yeah, with bizarre specs. So you've got you've got to make it. You've got to make the specs a part of the act, haven't you? People can't overlook the specs, can they? They can't look round the specs. But John Lennon, see the person, John Lennon, interestingly, didn't did he? John Lennon made a made a
2: point of deciding he who was incredibly kind of myopic, wasn't he? That he couldn't go on stage. Wearing glasses because it just it just didn't work, did it? And therefore he couldn't see anything. So in those, you see those, he could barely see the other members of the group, could he? You know, he, he's there, he was almost there, squinting at the front row, trying to work out what the hell was going on.
0: <laughs> Do you think that was a way of t- dealing with nervousness as well? I mean, there must be an odd thing to go on stage in front of all those people uh, at Shea Stadium or whatever, and think I can't see a thing. You know, surely it would help to be able to see things, or or you know, maybe he yes, just preferred to keep it. You know keep it at, at, trying to at pretend harm, that then. there aren't 55,000 people out there exactly, yeah, yeah, no, yeah. No, very, but very, because John Lennon didn't wear specs for years, and then post, well, how I won the war, wasn't it? When he appeared in, the, in that that film, um, uh, 1966, is it something like that? And and yep. he, uh, he's he, the stills, I remember the stills appearing in the, in the music papers at the time. It's like, oh, look, John Lennon in a pair of National Health Specs. That's a really curious idea of kind of plays with the idea of pop star glamour. And, of course, then later on when he adopted, when he started wearing Specs in public, it, there were those kinds of Specs, weren't they? And so people used to sell in the small ads at the back of the NME. They would sell when they John Lennon glasses, wouldn't they? You know... Just yeah, there was granny glasses. Too, was yeah. The granny right. glasses.
1: It was it was yeah, that John Lennon yeah. look, wasn't it?
0: When he finally got round to doing it. But you know, I so I still challenge you to imagine Robert Plant with a pair of specs, to imagine, you know, if the Rolling Stones took the stage and Keith Richards was wearing a pair of specs, it's not happening, is it? It's just it's not happening. working, is it? It's Hello. Longer, what? Oh, there are sun- people out there, are there? Oh, good lord! <laughs> <laughs> I say, who's that sunglasses? over there? That's Charlie. I... Yeah, yeah. So, if if anybody can think of any uh, exception to that rule or anything we've missed out, you know, please uh, get in touch and uh, and you know, let's keep this let's keep this red ball in the air, shall we? In
2: the air. I'm sorry that I've already stolen uh, Glenn Cornick. <laughs> That's ta- he's Paul. taken, girls.
0: <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> Relax. Yeah, one at a time, girls. He's married. You're listening to The Word Podcast. It's a lockdown lock-in. Yesterday's papers in which we delve through old editions of the music press. What you got there? Well, I've been up in the attic and had a trawl,
2: and I've come up with what? an absolutely fantastic edition of Rolling Stone. It's a special Beatles anniversary issue in February 1984. It was 20 years after their appearance on the Ed Sullivan Show, oh, right. and now they are on the cover, being showered with ticker tape. It's, it's I think, it's really, it's incredibly comprehensive. Years. And twenty years since the Ed Sullivan Show, which, of course, in America was what what kind of broke them, you know. So you've yeah, got yeah. very little of what else is going on in the world. There's the thing about Woody Allen and Mia Farrow and the success of Broadway, Danny Rose. That dates it. Those two working together. Ja- Michael Jackson been staying in the, in the Royal Plaza Hotel and insisted on having thirty nine of his golden platinum albums to decorate his suite. Uh, Mick Jones has been sacked from The Clash. And, yes, they're at number one with 90125, Duran Duran 7 oh. and the Ragged Tiger at number five in the album charts, and Dylan's Infidels at number nine. And it's all full of stuff about the police. But, no, the Beatles stuff is, I thought was absolutely brilliant, incredibly comprehensive. It's got an intro by Paul Theroux, who rather cleverly appropriates the Beatles culturally. So very that's very Louis famous, Theroux's that's father. father. That's Louis Theroux's father, exactly, travel writer. And he talks about how the Beatles started out imitating Elvis, Chuck Berry and Buddy Holly uh, and not the fruity-voiced English singers and and music hall that they kind of grew up in. So they're very much trying to say that without us, you know, there would be no Beatles. There's a great piece by Cindy Lauper talking about going to the airport, when she must have been about 10, I think, and screaming in in, in complete ecstasy and covering her face with her hands and therefore missing them. And when she takes her hands away, she can only see the back of their heads. Jackie DeShannon writes a fantastic thing about being on the on tour with the States and travelling in airplanes and watching Lennon writing "I am a loser." Carly Simon does a brilliant thing about going to see them in Toronto and being absolutely furious that they scream. The crowd screams, "We want the Beatles!" all the way through Dusty Springfield's support set. There's a little interview with George Harrison's sister when she talks about trying to get into his hotel. And she keeps telling telling the security people, "I'm his, I'm his sister. I'm George Harrison's sister." She said, like, "Sweetheart, they all say that. Move along." <laughs> And uh, there's a, an interview with a guy who uh, who stood in for Ed Sullivan on the Ed Sullivan show at the sound check, wearing a Beatles wig, stood in for George. Do you remember George was... Um, yeah, when well,
0: he was, he was, was in laryngitis. I love that him. idea. And
2: that's for his entire life. He'll have a photograph of himself with the Beatles. With the Beatles. The Beatles yeah. wig on. You know, it's absolutely yeah. brilliant. And then the yeah. last one I really like was where they meet Cassius Clay, Muhammad Ali. And there was this incredibly complicated thing to set up this kind of publicity picture, which they thought would be good for both of them. And at the end, uh, Ali says to them, uh, he says, uh, you must be making a lot of money. You can't be as stupid as you look. And John Lennon says, but you are, <laughs> which is great. Ooh. And uh, so, yeah. yeah no, dangerous was a, dangerous a very... thing to say the heavyweight you, champion. To, of the to world. a heavyweight boxer, it is, yeah. But it's a very solid, very solid edition. And it's funny, it reminded <laughs> me, you and I were talking the other day about Meryl Streep uh, on YouTube. And anyone could find it. If you put in Meryl Streep, Shea Stadium, you'll see a picture of her. I think she's just turned 16. And uh, and her mate are being interviewed about being at Shea Stadium watching the Beatles, and uh, it's her first ever kind of
0: sighting. Really amazing. It's good. So you, you mentioned ca- you mentioned Carly Simon there. I don't know yeah. if I've ever said this to you. Have you read Carly Simon's autobiography, Boys in the Trees? No, Trinity? I haven't. No. It's really no. good. It's really good. And uh, in the uh, in the mid sixties, she had uh, Carly Simon terribly kind of. Well-born, well-connected, beautiful young thing, um, and she formed a group with her sister Lucy. They used to do folk tunes, and they went to um, they went to London in the mid '60s. Tried to get some gigs, I think. Uh, and <laughs> everywhere they went, because clearly, you look at pictures, they think they were so beautiful. They, they, they were kind of Stonic. disreputable gentlemen of a certain age, Terry Thomas type. So we're going, yes. hello, my dear. Hello. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's really... And anyway, they go They go back. There's a wonderful incident in the book where they go back to New, to New York on the Queen Mary. And and travelling on the Queen Mary is Sean Connery. <laughs> who's just, you know, kind of newly world-famous as the Bond, yeah, fantastic. star, you know. And uh, they decide to invite him to their cabin for drinks. <laughs> the two Good of God, them, you know. And uh, wouldn't you know it, he comes. <laughs> and so they're there, like, you know, she writes this fantastic chapter about can't, can't imagine what he must have been expecting. You know, they were just not equal to the moment at all. It's just a wonderful vignette. That's, that's they an the amazing story. Life. They, the two of them are like 17, 18 years old or whatever, uh, looking absolutely fabulous. And there they are with the you know, sexiest man on earth as he was at the time, absolutely. Uh, Jean Connery. So what I've got in front of me is I've got the first issue of a magazine which came out in May 1980. Which I think I make is forty years ago. Forty. So will it be the face? Is that the face? It's the face. I've got the first issue of the face. You remember who was on the cover of the first issue of the face? Yes, I do. I can tell you now. It was Jerry Dammers. It's a. I think it might be a Chalky
2: Davis photograph. He's photographed bizarrely walking up some stairs and looking. It's the the least
0: likely cover picture you can ever possibly imagine. It is. He's walking up some stairs backstage at a gig, and. it's, it's quite interesting. Be, well, it's very interesting because it's it's quite slim. It's only 64 pages because there wasn't much advertising around in those days. And, uh, and it's also just before the arrival of Club Culture. So it's all about two-tone, really. You know, it, it's got big features about yeah. it, the specials and madness and... Uh, and it's got interviews with, uh, you know, there's Ian Dury, there's, uh, there's Jimmy Percy, there's uh, there's Public Image, there's j- the Jam, and so forth. But there's there's none of that kind of, you know, that kind of the Blitz world and all that stuff which was going to arrive not long afterwards, and was was ultimately was going to provide the kind of uh, the wave that, that, that the face was going to ride through the rest of the of the '80s. And of course, the other thing that strikes you. As you go back and you look at these magazines, they're mainly in black and white, you know, because there's very little yeah. colour, you know. People couldn't afford that kind of thing. It's... Uh, and I found... And it's I, unimaginable, I thought... isn't it? That Sorry, I was going to say, it's unimaginable, that club culture,
2: that you can't see it in colour because it's, it's entirely about colour. Actually, it's not true necessarily of two-tone, but everything else was vividly colourful, wasn't it? So it's hard and to I,
0: and I've got the curious uh the curious sensation of I'm looking at a spread here where there's a picture about there's a feature about Atletico spears uh, there's a feature about um scar reissues there's the obligatory picture of Wendy O Williams of the Plasmatics with her uh, you know <laughs> with her bosom out and there's a feature that I wrote that I have no recollection of whatsoever. I interviewed a New York oh DJ called Jane Hamburger. I know I, can, I cannot remember anything about it at all. But the amazing thing is, it's forty years ago. It's got it's got an advert that for magazines. The correct use of soap, which must have been the you know the the big new one of the big new albums of the time. It's got posters of Pauline. Well, that issue.
2: And that issue was, was produced by Nick Logan and uh, his designer, I guess it might have been Steve Bush, in the offices Steve, of they? Smash Hits where you and I were working. So uh, <laughs> and they were down in the, in the little room at the end, weren't they? And, uh, and we were all kind of, it was all shoulders to the grindstone. We were all helping out. I wrote some pieces. I think for that first issue and second issue, I did an interview with, with Chrissy Hind, I can remember. We all kind of, we all mucked in. Very
0: exciting, wasn't it? It was an amazingly exciting time. I can remember Nick um he had to pay the printer's bill for the first issue now he had to pay he had to pay the printer for the second issue before he had the, any revenue from the first one and he didn't know how he was going to do it and i offered to lend him some money <laughs> i didn't have much money at all i i made some offer i said if you want any help <laughs> I could have had 5% probably. <laughs> would have you done could. me all. all right. You may missed an <laughs> opportunity. So you just took
2: out a little bundle of notes and tucked it in your top pockets. Here you go. Here go, mate. Go on. Get your second issue out. God, that really was. It was pillar to post, wasn't it? And post was Oh, complete post. hand to
0: mouth. Hand oh, to right. mouth completely. Yeah, That's a brilliant, yeah, was... brilliant magazine. Yeah. Incredible magazine. Yeah.
1: The Word Podcast. What's wrong with being sexy? So
0: the death of Millie Small, um, that's an opportunity to reflect on genuinely unique figure in pop music. When was that record to hit, My Daughter in a Lollywood? Was that 1964? Yeah,
2: it's 1964. And uh, if I remember rightly, she was spotted by Chris Blackwell, who was living out in Jamaica, wasn't he? I think she was spotted at the age of 12 or something in a talent contest. And the interesting thing is, I mean, I can remember, I'm old enough to remember that coming out. I was whatever I was, 10, I guess. And you kind of, you didn't know anything about her at all. But he'd actually been, he had his eye on developing her as a, as a recording artist
0: for some time, hadn't he? Isn't that right? Well, he brought her to, um, he brought her to the UK when she was when it, 16, I think. Um, and he, he, he put her in a house in, in, in Forest Hill. Uh, in London, and uh, and kind of just he he groomed her, you know, to, to develop her as a as a potential star. I think he actually sent her to the Itali Conti stage school for a short period of time. And they That's tried right. various things, and and then they eventually picked up this song, "My Boy Lollipop," which had been a kind of really minor kind of R and B hit of a year or so earlier. Um, and the copyright apparently changed hands in a card game and then ended up with the property of, of Morris <laughs> Levy, the kind of gangster figure who always managed to get hold of really valuable copyrights. And they it they, they was re- arranged by Ernest Wranglin, who was a Jamaican musician. But it was recorded at Olympic Studios, I think, in, in the UK with English musicians reading charts. You know what I mean? These were guys in in shirt sleeves probably wearing braces you know what I mean? yeah. who, who played or played on this record Smoking uh, but that was ostent- in between takes yeah, probably, probably doing that <laughs> but that was ostensibly you know the first kind of um, first scar hit it was clearly a, a huge hit an enormous hit both in in the UK and in, in the United States uh, and uh, which know, gave it, him the money to
2: invest in 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 the record label, wasn't it? I mean, well, yeah, because he where it, a it lot was a came from.
0: Well, he was already doing stuff, you know. He was looking for opportunities to bring things in from Jamaica, you know, cause it's the same language, it's a lot of shared culture, and so forth. Um, <laughs> but yeah, my ball lollipop was clearly the the absolute the absolute breakthrough because it was an enormous hit, in, absolutely enormous. Of course, she ne- she never. She never followed it, but I mean, it, it, it's just it, it fascinates me because it's 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 the most inauthentic pop, pop record you've ever heard in your life. You know what I mean? In the sense of, it is not what it purports to be. You know, it is not the sound of Kingston, Jamaica, is it? You know, it was the sound of not Southwest American. London, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> and yet, no, it just has incredible <laughs> right. vibrancy to it. You know. Still to this day, you, you know, you could put that on at a, at a kind of wedding reception, couldn't you? And and people would just and really you would fill the it. floor. You really would, you know. It just sounded so fantastically alive, you know. It's a, it was a it magical, is. corny record, but a magical record as well, you know. And um, yeah, I think later on in life, I think she had some financial hard times, where I think Chris Blackwell kind of sorted her out latterly and uh, arranged for her a place to live and so forth. And so she probably participated in performance royalties, even though Maurice Levy no doubt got the publishing and all the more valuable side of it. But, uh, but, but struck a real genius kind of by him.
2: Yeah. Struck a genius by him to have to have had the, the kind of foresight to think that she would develop into something and to have put all that investment into, into bringing... Because she had elocution lessons, didn't she?
0: Well, yeah, you would thing, do, yeah yeah yeah. You you, you went, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what you did. You went, yeah, you It was a Simon Cowell type number, you know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It wasn't what people normally associate with Chris Blackwell, you know. it, yeah. was, uh, it was doing whatever was uh, was needed, you know, and it it, it absolutely worked. Uh, yeah, in, in her case, for a very short period of time and another
2: another kind of sad news too although bizarrely we were talking about him on the on the podcast last week when we it was Dave Greenfield the Dave Greenfield the Stranglers uh, yeah of only 71 I think and I just I was just rereading about the Stranglers I forgot they were old weren't they in comparative terms yeah they had their first hit in 1977 Jet Black was already 39 Jet Black oh. Jet Black is what 2 years older than the, any of the Beatles Three, four years older than members of the Stones. <laughs> Incredible, really. And um, Hugh and Dave were, I think, twenty-eight when they had their first hit. John Jack Burnell was twenty-seven. I mean, they were real old, real old school. Dave Greenfield had actually played in American uh, uh, bases in Germany in bands. I mean, really old school stuff. And the, I think it's interesting how how important a part of that band he was. You know, if you if you go to YouTube, you can find um, you can find footage and um, and sound uh, files of the Stranglers when they were just a two, two guitar, bass, and drums group before he joined. And of course, they're indistinguishable really from anybody else. That's what made the difference. Don't you think yeah. that keyboard sound? Yes, if you listen to yes. his solo on Walk On By, it's absolutely phenomenal. And, and Golden Brown, you know, that's it's so complicated. And they had that, you know, there it is. It's sort of rich and ornate organ figures and it's six, eight time signatures and stuff. And he just. They and he particularly brought a kind of musicianship to that group, which none of the punk rock bands had. And also, they didn't; they weren't particularly political either, so they weren't dated by what they were
0: songs about. They could just. Well, were we talking about the other day but that no, you went to see? Did you see them in Battersea Park, the famous, the infamous Battersea? Oh, Park I saw the Battersea show. Park. Yes, I, I think it was September
2: the sixteenth, nineteen seventy-eight. I was sent by the enemy to review them. You're absolutely right. But you forget, again, you forget; just that times have changed, you know. And halfway through the set, they were playing outdoors, Battersea Park. And they brought on a load of strippers, and a load of girls came on, tore their clothes off for what I assume must have been nice and sleazy, or, uh, or maybe peaches, or whatever. Oh yes, that. yes. And yes. Uh, and that was considered to be okay at the time. You know, I can't remember what I. I think I, I think I was slightly disapproving in my review for the enemy. Because oh, I imagine the would, you would be slightly disapproving. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. you're a just, little just bit the hostile. Enemy, the the enemy wouldn't have allowed for that. <laughs> yeah, absolute disgrace. <laughs> But it was pretty amazing to think about. I can remember there were all sorts of police problems and was it okay to have these kind of basically naked women throwing themselves around the stage in Patsy Park? Yeah, I went to see them in the Roundhouse too before that. I remember they had Hell's Angels of Security. There was a moment, maybe only lasted for about six months, when there was a real reign of terror, wasn't there? The Stranglers. The Stranglers was a a thrilling and exciting... Well, their first uh, album,
0: Rattus Norvegicus, that was a big chart album at a time when nothing else that kind of could claim any kind of kinship with punk was. You know, they just got slightly ahead of the game. They had a good record company behind them. They had hit singles and they went to the top of the pops, didn't they, and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, yeah. And uh, a load of people who wouldn't have been caught dead buying a Clash record bought a Stranglers record. Because um, it's interesting. Cause you it sounded the, the, old-fashioned, the, really. It sounded reassuringly a bit like The Doors. Um, it did but you talk about those age differences as if they were you know cuz in terms of actual years there were very few years difference really but it's just at that time there was such a kind of division between old and young you know you're either you're either on one side or the other weren't you at at that time you know and so there's there's the, the number of years dividing them Became really exaggerated in people's okay. uh, in people's view, completely. Because actually, I think I can't remember when Johnny Rotten
2: was born, but I think it's fifty five. So in fact, Johnny Rotten was probably only about three years younger than John jacques Bernal. But there did seem to be an enormous divide that Johnny Rotten was on the side
0: of the young people, and the Stranglers were on the side of the old people. You know, but don't you think but, it was also because it, what the, the Stranglers had was previous. You know, and at the time nobody talked about having any previous. You know, whereas no. at, at, Hugh Cornwell had been in a band with Richard Thompson at school. Emil yeah. and the detectives. Emil Emile, Emile you know. and the detectives, I remember that Well, story. so so Richard Thompson was young to be a member of Fairport Convention. He joined them he was like sixteen, seventeen, or whatever. And these these guys like you know, Hugh Cornwell were, were slightly old to old be a new, be new sensation. Yes. Yeah, and so, so he kind of upset people's way.
2: thinking. I love the way that everyone had to eradicate their past, didn't they? Because actually Johnny Rotten had grown up listening to Van de Graaff Generator, hadn't he? And Adam and had grown up listening to kind of Argent, and they loved all these groups, you know, but they weren't allowed to talk about them in interviews. No, know. no. Ground was Zero so, was kind of Iggy Pop and the Com- Stooges, you know, it was Velvet Exponded. Underground or David Bowie, yeah. possibly. I know, yeah. amazing. Yeah. And another one, another again, really sad news, which we only heard about yesterday. While well, we're recording this today on Thursday, it was, it was Florian Schneider of, um, of of Kraftwerk. My two sons are in absolute, you know, my two sons have been up all night, like in a ring of candles, you know, um, in their respective places, playing old Kraftwerk records because they absolutely adored them.
0: But that's another sad story, wasn't it? And he was pretty young too. But I I was thinking about when when. Autobahn came out. Was it 75, I think, or 74? Um, and what people don't realise, and I can remember this really clearly, is that it was a novelty record at the time. People thought, that's a funny idea. Here's a song, here's a record that just doesn't really change, you know, and it's supposed to reflect the monotony of the, the motorway. tedium, yeah. Uh, driving experience and guess what they've got an album where they do the thing even longer you know what I mean (laughs) and so it it was kind of like it wasn't at the time nobody at the time embraced it as kind of uh oh this is a brave new world you know they just thought this is kind of curious this is like Nut Rocker by Bean Bumble and the Stingers or something, you know? Do it. Mean? It's a kind of it's a kind of <laughs> joke. I've got here, um, Rob Robert Criscow's um, re- review of Autobahn, which appeared in I think the Village Voice at the time, and he called them the Iron Butterfly of Uber Rock. Mike oh Oldfee- my God. Mike Oldfield for unmitigated simpletons. <laughs> Uh oh You know, that that was the way it was looked at. I mean, a lot of people liked it, but they sort of thought it was slightly funny at the same time. You know, because the well, idea I remember of music, they just didn't change. That moment hadn't arrived. You know, that moment came not long afterwards, but it had not arrived at that point. You expected music at the point to have a kind of development, to have verses and have a bridge and a chorus and so forth, and to kind of go somewhere... That was the expectation of music, whereas no, this true. was trying to do something yeah. very different. It was kind of, and it, it was it was it was doing things that art music had previously done. I suppose, you know that I don't know, uh, you know uh, what what do you call him, uh, Terry Riley and people like that. But you yeah. know. That wasn't in the mainstream. Whereas this was suddenly on top of the pops, and it was in the mainstream, and it was. But also genuinely an revolutionary.
2: Yeah, but they're an example of a group coming along. Uh, yeah, at a time when there wasn't quite the kind of critical um, framework to understand what what they were doing, because I can remember that actually they got quite a lot of bad press. Do you remember them in mean, The Enemy and the Melody maker Weren't terribly enthusiastic about Kraftwerk in the early days. Well, I thought I was you looking at the whole idea was because they got there, they, they were reviewing it with their kind of rock hats on. Yeah. again, this is robotic and this is synthetic. This is not real music. Do you remember that? The idea that you, you didn't have a bass and drums, you know, that people were, were using as their kind of framework, of reference they were using kind of um, the Edgar
0: Broughton band I've got a, a review in front fake of me. And artificial I've got a review in front of me written by Jeff Barton in Sounds in September 1975 Jeff, a lovely bloke i uh, yeah. used to work with um, and he says and I, I'm not taking the mickey because we would all have said this probably he says Autobahn when it's eventually played is merely fair the band could have played it with more gusto, a bit more schnell, if you like, you know. And it's, CD and that's, could do better. Yeah, but that's kind of a classic example of what you're talking about, that you, you, you should play it louder, or you should play yeah. it faster, or you, exactly. you should celebrate it. Whereas the whole point about it was they didn't do any of that stuff at all. It was completely controlled, and then they, they kind of turned the switch on and left the stage, and it would have, it you know, probably carried on, although I think Autobahn was still made with some kind of traditional instruments later on. They they were more f- fully automated, but we, we didn't understand at that point that that was how music was going to go. You know, that it was Completely. just at the point of the beginning the complete, of automation. I can remember
2: the idea that you yeah, the idea you didn't really need to be at a craftwork concert because they were just pressing a button and playing their records, and very soon, you know, I don't know, 10, 15 years later, people were saying this is this is the future. They could they could just be projecting hologrammatic images of themselves and playing simultaneous concerts in six capital cities at one time you know and suddenly the group who'd been laughed at for being robotic and synthetic and somehow rather false were the kind of velvet underground or the Beatles of electronic music because that's the way they're regarded aren't they and quite right Uh, yeah the absolute cornerstone of electronic music you talk to anybody in the uh, in the EDM world you know and they are they are absolutely the founding fathers you know I
0: guess it's just fascinating how things change
1: the Word Podcast, walking the digital dog since 2007.
0: Well, that about wraps it up, as they used to say in the world of radio. Uh, We've got the usual uh, quiz this weekend on Saturday. Saturday tea time. It's a new tradition, and that's specially for our um, Patreon uh, supporters who've uh, signed up to support us via Patreon, and we're very pleased to have them, and we send them a link. Uh, About ten to five on a Saturday evening, and then we get them all on board, and we have a bit of a bit of a game of Can you tell who it is yet? Uh, (laughs) And so we'll finish now with uh, Mark. I think you're going to read to us the names of the people who very kindly stepped up to the plate to be our new patrons this week. Over to you, Mark. I have, and I thought I might adopt that. I mean, that voice they used to have in
2: those uh, in those uh, cinema trailers, which is uh, which I used to love that kind of American American voice. Go, horror beyond your wildest imaginings. Or they'd always start
1: in a world, you know, in a world where death is love and love is hate and hate is cruelty. That's the voice I'm going to use. We'd like to. The darkness falls across the land. The midnight hour is close at hand. We would like to thank Matthew Smith, David Senaquist. Lawrence Howell, Kim Buckler, Stephen Lamb, John Innes, Laureline, Michael Beard, Barry Nicholson, and not forgetting Kieran Crowley and Mike Mayer, and somebody who just simply refers to himself as Paul and Doctor Volume, that's a great name, and Grant Hobson, and Janet Davis, and Neil. And Paul Gorman, who's actually been on the
2: podcast And Meringa Vandervar, as previously mentioned Jeremy
1: Nichols And Peter Morrison-Bartlett And Nick Treadwell Martin Gurney Steve Trice James Miners Sarah Pettigrew And Mark Butler Thank you very much for your patronage of the word podcast And sleep well, my beauties This podcast was brought to you by The Word. Support comes from ServiceNow, the AI platform for business transformation. You've heard the hype around AI. The truth is, AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. ServiceNow is the platform that puts AI to work for people across your business.